First, though, this is the big news story of the day and talking about getting your vaccination. As of uh, about 9.40 uh, a.m. this morning, uh, we had registered about 1.7 million calls. I just want to put that in context. Um, there are about um, uh, 47,000 people 90 and above in B.C., and they're the eligible group. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Richard Zussman, Global News online journalist. He is based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Jill, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so that number, can you explain how we're seeing so <laughs> many uh, calls, 1.7 million calls in the first three hours, when, as he just said, uh, it's less than 50,000 people eligible right now? So there's a few things going on here. One of them, I got a message from someone who told me that in the first three hours, they called... 1100 times and so what will happen is you will call it will say unnormal call volumes call back later and then this individual decided to hang up and call back again and again and again and again i don't have enough time to go through that 1100 times Uh, we have heard from a lot of people who have called dozens of times if not more so that's one of the things going on here it's not 1.7 million people calling in it is some people who are eligible calling in multiple times because they can't get through The other part in all this are people who are calling who are not eligible. And we have no idea how many of those people there are. But we are hearing from uh, public health that people are calling and getting through with questions like, I have the sniffles, where can I go get a COVID test? Well, Mm. this phone line is solely for getting an appointment for vaccination. And the phone line in each health authority is solely for those right now 90-plus general population, uh, Indigenous uh, individuals who are 65-plus. Overall, there is a little bit fewer than 100,000 people who are eligible. It's also important to note, Jill, a lot of those people have already received their shots uh, in long-term care or assisted living or independent living. So we don't actually know how many people are eligible right now for this, but Clearly, there are a few different factors at play here for why the call volumes are so high and people are struggling to get through. And I guess, too, when you talk about, I mean, 1,100 times, that's a a bit, you've got to think at some point, if you're doing that, then you realize you've become part of the problem in that if everybody does that, that's what's going to jam up the phone lines. Yeah, and I think a a message from the province now is uh, there are enough spots for everyone. And it's not first come, first serve that we have until the end of the week to get everybody booked in who are in these two demographics, 90 plus. Again, that's 1931 birth dates and earlier. So there'll be some 89-year-olds in there as well. Uh, Plus uh, Indigenous 65 plus. Again, there'll be some 64-year-olds in there because of birth dates as well. And everybody will get an appointment. So be patient. You don't have to all call now and get it done. The other really interesting thing I'm hearing about, Jill, is in Fraser Health, they do have an online booking service. And those that are booking online are reporting that it's going quite smoothly. There are a few little catches there. If you are booking online in Fraser Health for a loved one over the age of 90, uh, make sure you check the dates because you're actually able to book in for this week, but you won't be able to confirm the appointment because it's not available for 90 plus until next week. Those appointments this week are for uh, those who are already eligible, vulnerable populations, healthcare workers, uh, you know, those who are working with vulnerable populations. So be careful if you're on the online system about the dates. But I asked Adrian Dix this, the health minister earlier today when he was doing a press conference about why there wasn't a requirement for every health authority to have an online portal. And he didn't answer the question. He just said they're working on it for the general population. There will be online portals for everyone. But it seems like that could have been a way 
especially with young loved ones doing it for their uh, grandparents or parents, uh, that they could have been able uh, to, to help ease some of this congestion by ensuring every health authority had an online booking website available for today. I heard you ask that question, and I was glad you did. And it was unfortunate he didn't answer it because it does seem just it doesn't make any sense that you have these two very large health authorities. One was able to get a website and an online booking portal and one wasn't. It doesn't make any sense at all. And spoiler alert, uh, if I do get a question at three o'clock for Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian <laughs> Dix, I'm going to ask it again, uh, because I do think that this is one of the flaws with the system today is that uh, some opportunities were missed there. And yes, you know, everybody will get their time, but this is clearly creating a lot of anxiety. And Adrian Dix paints it in the way that this shows that people are confident this vaccine will want to get their shot. That's true. And that's great news. But it also shows how anxious people are to get this. I've spoken to already today a number of family members who are getting the va- get trying to get the appointments for their loved ones. And it's the sense that they're more anxious than their loved ones are because they've seen the toll that the pandemic has taken on their loved ones and the isolation. And this vaccine provides that hope that sooner rather than later, they will be able to visit with their friends and family again if they are vaccinated. And that's what this phone call means. It's not just, you know, like getting a concert ticket or a campsite. This is about freedom for them. And that's where that anxiety comes from. The province could have helped provide some more resources to make that a little bit easier. I also found the answer. There was a question asked in the news conference earlier today as well. In the States, they've been given clear guidelines on once you are vaccinated, what what opens up, yeah. what restrictions are lifted. And Adrian Dix was asked a couple of times that I heard and wasn't able to say, uh, said, no, we basically have to keep following the restrictions and towing the line, yeah. uh, which I think is, is dangerous too, because we are going to have a lot of people who are 80 plus, 70 plus, who are vaccinated. And if you think that people are going to continue doing that, they're not going to go and see their friends and see their family. I think they're very mistaken in thinking that. Yeah. And and I was chatting with someone today, and this is CDC guidelines you mentioned. And one of the realities is the United States is uh, much further ahead of us uh, in terms of vaccination. And so there's more of the population. The other question I have in that, the CDC's guideline is fully vaccinated. Does it qualify when you only have one shot? Because a majority of British Columbians are for months and months and months only going to have one shot of the COVID vaccine. And does that qualify as fully vaccinated? And how does that work under the CDC guidelines? So that aside, you're right. And I think even just seeing the hope that people have for the vaccine is changing people's behavior. Uh, Minister Dix alluded to the fact that when we get the numbers at three o'clock today, they're not going to be pretty. That we're continuing to see COVID-19 cases climb because we're seeing some people out there say, well, the most vulnerable are getting their shot. They're the ones that could get very sick and die. I feel like I'll recover from this. So I'm just going to go back to living some semblance of normality. So there's this really tricky balance. I think this is going to be one of the toughest stretches we have. The combination of not a lot of people vaccinated yet with this expectation. And, and the line that Adrian Dix kept using is, we can't live the future in the present. And I think the reality is we don't know the answer yet for when those that are vaccinated can gather because we don't know yet um, if we're going to have enough people vaccinated that it won't cause. Because we know some things about the vaccine. We know that it, it helps cut down on death and severe illness. 
But in some cases, people are still getting sick and they're still carrying the virus as well, Jill. So those factors are really important that even if you're vaccinated, you potentially could pass the virus on to someone else who isn't vaccinated. All right. So we'll be looking forward to to that three o'clock briefing. Uh, Richard, just before you go, can you reiterate what you said about booking this week? Just so it's very clear for people that are, say, booking for a loved one or if somebody is on the online, which is only available in Fraser Health, what do they need to watch out for with the dates? Yeah, so if you're booking online on Fraser Health, uh, you will have the option to book appointments, including this week. Do not do that because it won't be able to confirm that because for those in the 90 plus group, the appointments start next week. So it can be a little bit tricky on the website. So for those in Fraser Health booking online, and hopefully this is an issue they can address, but as more people get on there, it will be confusing. But if you're booking online for 90 plus, look at those appointments for next week and not this week. All right. Sounds good. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, as expected, there have been some glitches, long waits for people trying to get through to the phone lines to book a COVID-19 vaccination appointment for people who are eligible starting next week. That is people 90 plus or 65 plus in Indigenous communities. Not a huge surprise that the phone lines were overwhelmed uh, with calls. We were hearing those reports uh, of some people calling, uh, one gentleman calling uh, 1,100 times trying to get through. Uh, Seems like it's going a bit smooth on the website, but there is only a web portal in Fraser Health, not one in Vancouver Coastal Health. How do you make sure, though, you get the message out to everybody, uh, people that might have a barrier to uh, getting that information, say it's a language barrier, maybe they don't have the proper equipment as far as uh, accessing the internet. How do you make sure to get the message out there? Well, Daniel Fontaine is joining us now, CEO and Deputy Minister for the Métis Nation of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Are we able, uh, does it appear to you that we are getting the message out and making sure that it is available in different languages and getting to everybody? I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. I know for our own Métis government, we've uh, been working for the last, almost the better part of the last two months to ensure that we do everything we can to get information into the hands of Métis individuals across the province of British Columbia. And that includes very conventional things like uh, actually printing a postcard and mailing that out to every single person's home uh, that we have as a Métis citizen uh, registered with us through our, we have a health portal where people could register and, and get information, right through to uh, establishing robocalls and text messages. Uh, we've been, we've had an Elder Connect program where we've phoned uh, seniors, uh, elders across the province. We have been using every method possible that we can to make sure that people have the information that they need um, at their disposal when it comes to uh, getting vaccinated. And we do still have a portal on the mnbc.ca website where people can register. We uh, 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 proactively update them uh, as soon as we have new information from the health authorities and from the Ministry of Health. So so today is absolutely crazy busy, as we can tell. But so far, I think a lot of that prep work that we've done over the last couple of months is, is definitely paying off. And so did you do that knowing that this would be part of the rollout, that this would be needed then to, to go alongside the government's mm-hmm. rollout plans? 
Yeah, we've worked very much as Métis Nation BC. We've worked very closely with the Ministry of Health and with Dr. Henry and the, the Provincial Health Office. It's been a really good partnership uh, as well as with the health authorities. So what you see in the health authorities is you'll see the Métis Nation logo on a number of them. When you get to some of the vaccination clinics, um, they're more welcoming by seeing, again, the, the branding. A big part of it, Jill, for us, for, for Métis people and other Indigenous peoples across the provinces, as you know from the report that was issued by Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond, there is, uh, there are, and there are and remain a number of issues of systemic racism within the healthcare system. It's well documented, so we know that there are a lot of people who are hesitant to interact with the health system. So our, our government is really working hard to convey a very strong message that it's, it's vitally important that all Métis people across the province of British Columbia, when it's their time, to ensure that they get registered and they, they do interact and that those sites will be culturally welcoming. And there's a number of Indigenous vaccination clinics that have been set up. And in the case, as you indicated, of Fraser Health, it's as simple as going online. I know uh, my wife and I helped my mother-in-law, who's over 90, and she got registered today. It took only a couple minutes to do it online. So we're trying to encourage people to, to, uh, to get registered this weekend to make sure that they get their vaccination as soon as possible. And that's great news that you were able to do that. And, and the more I'm hearing of people going online and, and getting that done, it seems like that is the much uh, kind of smoother mm. process happening today, uh, for sure. Uh, you mentioned people being uncomfortable when going to the clinics. So, so can you kind of assure people or, or what will it look like to make sure are there going to be uh, would there be uh, Métis people there as well or would there be people there to make sure that that even if someone is hesitant they're not quite sure what to to expect that they they will be uh, comfortable when they're there well part of it is uh, explaining and trying to educate and and let our citizens all Métis citizens know that we have been working very closely with with Dr. Henry we've been working closely with the health authorities part of it is that messaging to them to say that these are not just uh, clinics that you're going to you're going to go to, and there's been no input or no uh, interaction or feedback from Métis Nation BC. So we just we've tried to convey that to them, but we've also encouraged all the health authorities so that when when Métis people get on site and other Indigenous peoples, that they see uh, the proper signage, they see the logo of our our nation there, that they're made to feel welcome uh, in those clinics. And where possible, obviously, if there are Indigenous staff that are able to, to greet and to welcome them to be part of it, of course, we're encouraging that as well. But a big part of it is making sure that people understand that uh, we have been part of that process and our nation has been working with the ministry uh, to get these clinics going. We've done joint communications with the provincial health office. We've been uh, pr- provided with that advanced information. All that stuff's been happening behind the scenes for the last couple of months. So that that, I think may not allay all the fears, but I think it will help um, to assure people who maybe have had a bad interaction with the healthcare system uh, throughout their life that that we're trying to make things a bit different and that this time uh, it's vitally important that um, you work with Métis Nation and the province of British Columbia to to come in and get that vaccination. And and so far, we're we're very uh, pleased. Uh, Not all the health authorities have done the signage and stuff, but a number of them have, and a number of them have have worked really closely with us, so we're very pleased with that. And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you get any impression from other uh, other groups or other type, other groups that would kind of be in the same scenario, trying to get that information to people uh, that they're as organized. It seems like the, the Métis Nation uh, is very organized in doing this. Do, do, have you heard from any others uh, that they're doing the same thing? 
Yeah, it's a little bit more challenging for other other groups. Um, the Métis Nation is effectively the government for Métis people in British Columbia. So we have our own Ministry of Health, we have Ministry of Health staff, we have other staff that um, have been working and coordinating this for the last number of months. So I, I have uh, heard and kind of seen and uh, heard anecdotal stories that it is a, a lot more challenging in other cultural communities across British Columbia where they may not have that. But I have uh, also heard that there are a lot of great initiatives going on within a number of the churches and a number of different nonprofits and organizations that are trying to get um, that information out. And it's, I think it's not so much that there isn't an awareness of the importance of getting the vaccination. It really is about making sure that they're culturally safe, making sure that there are issues around uh, language and, and being able to have multilingual staff on hand. Those are all critical things that do need to happen on site to make sure that people do feel, feel welcome and, and safe when they arrive at the clinic. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, Daniel, thanks Thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this. Really important, I know, to get make sure that message is getting to everybody it possibly can. So thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Well, this evening at the Vancouver Park Board, once again, the idea of making a dedicated bike lane in the park, that means removing one lane of traffic and giving that lane to bikes, reducing it to one lane of traffic through the park, that is going to be discussed. Uh, Camille Dumont, the Park Board Chair, spoke with Global News about why he is bringing back this proposal. Uh, I would frame it as incredibly popular last summer. Uh, Certainly there are folks who are frustrated about it and who don't want to see this move forward, but overwhelmingly, I think I think the respondents to the mobility survey that was done kind of shared that they had a really good experience at the park, that it really made a lot of sense for them, and they wanted to see that again. And uh, we do also have an open motion at the park board to look at long-term traffic reduction in the park. Uh, It's basically a motion that came up in June of 2020. So we're doing a longer-term study, and it felt uh, reasonable to nest another temporary bike lane underneath that data gathering this summer. So that's why I thought it would be a good idea to move this. Let's bring in Trisha Barker, an NPA Park Board Commissioner. Trisha, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for continuing the conversation about this. Well, I imagine it will be a heated debate this evening. What is your response when you hear Camille DeMont say that it was popular and that this is part of gathering more data before there are permanent changes? I just find it incredibly frustrating. Uh, it was popular to the people that came and rode their bikes in Stanley Park. It was horrendous for the people that couldn't get to Stanley Park because the roads were closed or the parking lots were closed off. Uh, We heard from so many people, uh, seniors and people who had even been locked away in their homes because of the pandemic. They wanted to get out and um, they couldn't get to places in the park. So they just opted not to go. And uh, there were um, the disability parking spots that were taken away. And all of these issues have not been addressed. And I think that uh, everyone calmed down to think that it was going to be properly studied before thinking about uh, bringing any changes forward. So to find out that it was going to be discussed tonight at the meeting, and from what we can see, it has the votes to go forward, that means we are again not speaking to the people that this is going to hurt. And they are just, as I said, they are devastated that no one's listening to them. 
We've heard certainly from some of the businesses that are in the park, uh, one restaurant saying they shut down uh, last year and that if that goes ahead, they're not to even, they're, they're considering not opening again, saying it's just not worth it because if the cars can't get there, if people can't get there, they aren't getting uh, the foot traffic, uh, the loss of parking. What about the loss of revenue, the parking revenue again, which is a benefit, I understand, for all parks? It's a benefit for all parks. And that's always taken care of the maintenance of Stanley Park. So, um, you know, park, it's very expensive to um, keep up all the aspects of all of our parks. And yes, and we were paying uh, for that with that parking revenue. So not only did we take away the revenue, but we added all the cost and the time for staff to keep that uh, lane open just for the cyclist. That was a lot of money. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but that cost a lot of money just to keep that lane open was for bikes. It's, it seems a bit odd as well. When, when Camille Dumont talks about the fact that he says it was a success last year, it was very different last year because if I'm remembering correctly, part of the reason this was done was because of crowding and people distancing. We still didn't know what we were dealing with with this pandemic. But was it not done because cyclists were taken off the bike lane? And I get that it's not a high-speed, hardcore bike lane on the seawall, but weren't cyclists taken off the seawall to give more room to pedestrians? And this was done to at least give cyclists so they could still cycle through the park? Yeah, and that was the excuse that we used, the park board used for not um, reverting back to normal. And, you know, they said, well, we wanted to keep the bikes off the seawall. But in any other place in the city, uh, like the False Creek seawall, you had the bikes, you had the people there. Um, It wasn't a problem. It was, you know, I thought it was an excuse to keep that other bike lane open. Because we've always being able to put the bikes and uh, the people down on the seawall and people really missed biking the seawall. So I just felt it was an excuse. And I think that uh, they had to, they had to say something about why they were keeping that lane closed for everyone. I get a ton of email on this issue, a lot from people who say uh, we we don't live in Vancouver, we're elderly, the only way we can get there is to drive, from people with disabilities who say the only way they can get there is to drive and they're having issues with parking. But I'm also getting email from people who are cyclists saying, I'm a cyclist, I'm a a fast cyclist, I don't don't ride on the seawall because that's more of a meandering uh, type of cycle, but also saying they didn't think it was broken, that they were fine riding on the street, sharing the street and riding with traffic the way it was. Uh, are you hearing that as well? Because it seems like it's it's almost as though we're trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. I think you said it exactly what I'm hearing. Stanley Park was not broken. And we all seem to be able to share the park really well until this hit. And so, yeah, and I do hear that from the cyclists that really enjoyed just sharing that one, the two lanes with the cars and not having to worry about, um, you know, the kids going up the big hill and things like that. So there wasn't a problem with Stanley Park until we decided to do this um, bike lane on the the park drive. And the fact that we're going to bring it back again when some people loved it, but but we have to make sure that we're looking at the majority. And uh, and I, I still am very distressed that we've not given back the disabled parking spots that we took away. And it's been 11 months. And before this, I thought that we weren't allowed to take away disabled parking spots. And we've done it. And we've done it and just said, oh, well. And I, I just find that 
disgusting that we're doing that. I was just going to ask you, is there not some rule or or maybe there's not that a percentage or that a certain number of, of disabled parking spots need to be given to people or provided to people? I don't know the exact ruling, but yes, this is why when you go to a grocery store, there's always the disabled parking spots right close to the front door. And um, we've always done this, and we consider ourselves a very accessible city. And I think we were doing a pretty good job until this hit. And, you know, we took away all the disabled parking spots for, I think it was seven months, and some of them have not been returned along Beach Avenue. They were all gone. And... You know, it, it it just happened. And I, I tweeted it out once a month, and they remain closed. And so there, there was no parking spot um, for someone to go and use if they had to have that extra room. It sounds like you said off the top, the votes are there that this will likely happen again. There have been threats of lawsuits by the businesses, some of the businesses in that park. Uh, people are, are, there's been a petition, I know, of people not wanting to see this. Uh, some people, yes, are in favor of this. Uh, what happens next then as far as uh, d- does the debate happen tonight and it gets put through or what do you see happening? Well, we'll discuss it uh, tonight. But, uh, you know, uh, Commissioner Cooper and I uh, asked that this got this would be referred to the committee. So at least the public could come and have their say. But um, that didn't happen. So it will go through tonight. And I'm pretty sure that they have the votes. And uh, Commissioner Dumont has said that he wants it to be put in as quickly as possible. But, uh, you know, uh, there's one gentleman I run into quite often when I'm on my walks and he's in a wheelchair And he said that he's just afraid that we'll forget about them and give up. And I said, no way. I'm not going to forget. We have to keep on fighting this no matter what happens. We have to keep on saying Stanley Park is for all. And we've got to make sure everyone can easily get there. All right. Trisha Barker, we'll be watching to see what happens tonight at the meeting. Thanks so much for taking some time today. Thank you. Well, it is International Women's Day. The BC Girl Guides of Canada are celebrating and they had a very busy weekend. Various events all about empowering young women. Later today, they'll have a virtual meeting with the Prime Minister and our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with the Commissioner of the BC Girl Guides. Hey, good afternoon, Jill, and happy International Women's Day. I think it's important to remember that today is not just about celebrating the women who have accomplished amazing things all Already, but also thinking about the future and cheering on the women leaders of tomorrow. So with that in mind, we are now joined by Diamond Issinger. She is the commissioner for the BC Girl Guides of Canada. And Diamond, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Happy International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to you too. Now, obviously, a very special day for you and your team. And I just want to talk about you here for a moment, because as the commissioner of the BC Girl Guides, obviously, you're in a position where a lot of those girls are looking up to you as a leader and as a role model. So tell us about that experience and what it means for you to uh, celebrate International Women's Day. Well, I'm really excited to celebrate today. And I think I'm most excited because of the amazing network of women that I get to be a part of. I joined Girl Guides when I was five myself and have gone all the way through a Girl Guide program and have become a volunteer myself as an adult. And it's wonderful to be able to look around me and see the diverse women that are stepping up in their communities to empower girls, to give back, and to hopefully make those girls want to, when they become adults, 
want to do the same. I love hearing that. It's not just the education that they pick up with the Girl Guides, but of course the invaluable lessons on how to become leaders and role models themselves. Now, I understand over the past weekend, Girl Guides of BC celebrated International Women's Day and they got to meet with some very special guests. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit here? Yes, of course. I mean, today is International Women's Day on a Monday, but we celebrated over the weekend with a number of activities. We had uh, a group of girls from across BC, teenagers, who hosted a youth leadership conference for other girls like them. They hosted a number of sessions on topics like careers in the skilled trades, in science, um, about how to apply for scholarships about public speaking skills, among many other topics. And it was wonderful for them to be able to um, build their own leadership skills in that way while also helping other girls take the lead. Because girls in our Girl Guide program are, of course, tomorrow's women leaders, but they're also today's girl leaders. They are totally capable of taking on community challenges and making a difference. And we see that every day as part of Girl Guides. I love that. And part of connecting with the education minister and a couple of different MLAs. I mean, those are the role models that they can directly look to and want to aspire to become eventually. And and again, I think that's so important to do on an International Women's Day is to not just recognize the women that are now currently established, but to maybe look and see that the younger generation are following their example. Exactly. And we see as well that, you know, girls and women are achieving better outcomes in their in their lives today and having more freedom and independence to make the choices about the lives that they want to lead. But there are still girls and women that don't have that freedom, um, that don't feel like they have that freedom. And it's really important for programming like Girl Guides to be offered to introduce girls to career paths, to break down stereotypes and barriers, um, to connect girls with role models and mentors. We were really excited um, recently to launch this year for the first time ever um, new scholarships for girls that want to pursue careers in the skilled trades. We have long offered scholarships for post-secondary education, but we thought it was important to diversify the types of education that we were funding for our Girl Guide members. And so all of those activities are incredibly important in terms of how we empower girls to be anything and everything that they want to be. I'm not a parent myself, not just yet, but hoping to be a dad one day and uh, would be great if I could be a dad to a lovely daughter who could look into some of those scholarships. So I um, I appreciate the fact that they're even available. So I, I love hearing that it's being expanded on a little bit. Now, one thing that I understand uh, the BC Girl Guides get to do later today is actually have a virtual meeting with the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself. Can you talk about their level of excitement for that opportunity? Because not everyone gets to have a virtual session with the PM. That's true. I mean, this is one opportunity amid the challenges of COVID. Of course, it's changed how we deliver our programming. Right now, we're virtual and outdoors only, as opposed to our indoor and camping activities. But it's been pretty awesome to be able to connect more flexibly online with some amazing people. And in the case of today's activity, we'll have some girls connecting with the Prime Minister alongside some of our adult volunteers to share their reflections on leadership, to share their hopes and dreams for what the future of Canada can hold. And I think it's pretty great to give girls that opportunity because their voices aren't just important when they become adults or voters, they're important voices are really important today if we are to um, have communities and have a society that meets their needs. Very well said. And uh, for those uh, that are listening right now that are maybe new parents or have daughters that want to become a Girl Guide, where can they find more information and all those necessary resources? 
Yeah, we welcome new girls, new volunteers all year round. Every day is a good day to uh, to learn a bit more about Girl Guides. You can visit our website at girlguides.ca. We have an online registration platform for girls ages 5 plus to join us. And we offer programming for girls all the way up to uh, the end of high school. So we are glad to have girls of any age join us. And of course, at different ages, there are different opportunities. We have our youngest girls that are learning what it means to be a friend, what it means to be part of a team. We have our oldest girls who are leading teams like through the leadership conference that they plan this weekend. So we'd love to have more people be part of it. We'd love to have women role models step up as volunteers. And you can find more info on on our website at girlguides.ca. Perfect. And last question. I know it's always such an important time of year. It happens in the fall. It happens in the spring. Uh, How are we looking at for cookie sales? I know uh, we just recently had one. Is that window still open? We're at the tail end of our uh, chocolatey mint cookie campaign. It has been a very different campaign than usual. Of course, you'd have girls normally setting up booths in public and uh, and doing all those types of sales activities. We've had to pivot because of COVID, and we've been really grateful for the support of our communities, but we still do have cookies to sell. You can ask, of course, a girl guide that you know, a girl or an adult or a neighbor of yours, for example, and I'm sure they'll be happy to connect you with some cookies in person. Or you can also visit our new cookie website at cookies.girlguides.ca, where we actually have for the first time ever the ability to order cookies online and have them shipped to your home. So though COVID has posed its challenges, it's also presented some innovations. Uh, my online shopping habits are about to uh, exponentially rise upon that discovery, but I love that it's now available and indeed a, a sign of the times that we're living in. She is Diamond Issinger. She is the commissioner for the BC Girl Guides. And Diamond, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And again, happy International Women's Day. Thank you. Have a great day.